Welcome to FedSpeak, brought to you by MNI Market News. I'm Pedro da Costa, and I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Richard Berner to the podcast. Dr. Berner served as the first director of the Treasury's Office of Financial Research from 2013 to 2017, and he was also counselor to the Secretary of the Treasury from April 2011 to 2013. Before that, he was chief economist at Morgan Stanley for over a decade. Dr. Berner is now clinical professor of finance and co-director of the Volatility and Risk Institute at New York University's Stern School of Business, which makes him the perfect guest to discuss the risks to the financial system and to financial stability more broadly, posed by rapid monetary tightening from the Fed and central banks around the world. Thank you so much for coming on FedSpeak. Thanks for the opportunity. So the Fed's aggressive rate hikes you know, unprecedented, 75 basis points, four meetings in a row, and and looks like a few more to go at least. People were fearing that they'd lead to some kind of breakage in the financial system. And we've had some ructions, but perhaps, perhaps nothing breaking so far. We had the British guilt and pension crisis. And I'm wondering if you think that we've kind of skirted this potential problem or whether the the biggest financial risks from the tightening campaign still lie ahead. That's a great question, Pedro, and, and uh, thanks for asking it. You know, I think, uh, as I've said many times, I think that the most of the risks in our financial system lie outside the perimeter of banking regulation, specifically in non-bank financial intermediaries and in systemically relevant markets. And the Treasury question is a is you know an example of that. You know, we've seen reduced liquidity in a variety of sovereign debt markets, and that was certainly the case. Uh, in the gilt market disturbance. That was unique in some ways because the UK pension system creates incentives for pension plan sponsors uh, and their managers to fully fund and to invest in long-dated gilts. And they were really the only uh, buyer in that market. So when problems started to emerge, owing to their leverage and to the diminished liquidity in that market, there weren't any buyers really to step forward. That's different from the United States. But I think the general idea that we've seen liquidity risks surface more frequently in markets is something that financial stability policymakers need to pay attention to and to think about how to reduce strong demands for liquidity in stressful periods, how to uh, make supply um, more uh, ample in stressful periods. And, you know, that's the framework, I think, for, for thinking about that. And also to provide incentives for uh, traditional providers to maybe uh, not step back from what they've been doing and, and to provide, once again, uh, liquidity to markets. So those things are all really important. And what do you make of the fact that we keep getting concerns about liquidity in the treasury market, which, of course, is supposed to be the world's most liquid, and also as a corollary there's been a lot of talk about treasury market reform, uh, but it's a slow process. And I'm wondering what you think you know, might be the top things that might actually be helpful there. Sure. And I think that some of the reform proposals have a lot of validity. So for example, one of them clearly is uh, making permanent a change in the supplementary leverage ratio and banking regulation, which would reduce the incentive not to engage in low risk activities like repo and treasuries. Um, and so that's one proposal that I think many people agree on. The trick there is to make sure that you don't loosen capital requirements in the process. Uh, the UK faced this in 2016, and they topped up their capital ratios. 
to offset the reduction in the leverage ratio that they that they put in place. I think that underscores the fact that often when you put in place a regulation that's designed to make the financial system stronger, it can have unintended consequences, and this is certainly one of them. But there are there's a variety of other proposals that I think that have merit. Central clearing of treasuries and repo has been discussed a lot, which would reduce counterparty risk. And of course, ironically, uh, we know that with collateralized finance and particularly in CCPs, the process of central clearing transforms counterparty risk into liquidity risk. So then we have to think about, you know, again, where the demands for liquidity are and what the sources are. And in CCPs, you know, they shift a lot of the risk to their clearing members. Policymakers are thinking and regulators are thinking about ways to address that. But the result is that they're raising margins, um, either variation or initial margin, uh, can often be pro-cyclical in nature. And that is part of the nature of collateralized or secured finance. So we need to think about ways to reduce that pro-cyclicality because what happens is that when uh, you see um, haircuts go up, you see liquidity start to evaporate in financial markets, it affects both the ability to fund a portfolio of assets or what we call funding liquidity. And that spills over into market liquidity, which is basically what we're talking about in the context of the treasury market. The fundamental driver in treasuries and many other sovereign debt markets is that the growth in treasury and sovereign debt has outstripped the capacity of traditional intermediaries uh, to make those markets. Um, rapid growth in the wake of the financial crisis and the pandemic um, and other factors really have given us very strong growth in those debt markets. And the system doesn't have the capacity to intermediate them like it once did. So a variety of reforms have been proposed. I think that some of them ought to include uh, thinking about which are the most important markets, what I call systemically relevant markets, of which treasury, the treasury market is certainly one, and making sure we do all the things that we need to do to make that market fair and effective, uh, as well as making sure that those demands and supplies for liquidity are addressed. One of the things that's been talked about a lot is to broaden the Fed's standing repo facility, which was set up under the umbrella of monetary policy, not financial stability policy. So legislation would probably be required to do that, Um, but it would really be helpful because the problem is that You look at banks which have access to this facility and primary dealers, but they are not willing or in some cases able to on-lend provide that liquidity to the rest of the financial system. So there's a variety of things that need to be done. Can we talk a little bit about non-bank finance and what's what's referred to as the shadow banking system? As I mentioned to you, I I don't love that term because it feels like these aren't exactly, you know, shadowy instances. When we actually talk about the firms that are involved in the shadow banking system, these are firms whose names we know, and they're, you know, engaged in activities that are very important for finance generally. But it seems like a blind spot for regulators almost by choice, because we we had the financial crisis and the focus was very much on uh, bolstering bank capital to prevent another repeat of that particular incident. But of course, that led to some migration of risk to other other pockets. It did indeed. And, you know, that regulatory arbitrage has really been something prevalent. And while it's not responsible for the growth of our capital markets, it certainly has contributed to the speed of uh, of that growth or the pace of it. And there's no question that, you know, risk is going to go to places where there's 
less regulation, less opacity, less transparency. And that's something that we haven't paid a lot of attention to in financial reform and need to pay more attention to. So I don't mind the term shadow banking as long as it's correctly used. And I'm kind of a stickler about that. I think shadow banking involves the creation of money-like liabilities, think mutual fund, uh, money market mutual funds, without an official backstop. You know, we have a safety net for good reasons for banks to make sure that in addition to supervising them and making sure they're safe and sound, also to make sure that depositors and banks are not at risk because of the failure of an institution. We have deposit insurance. And we also have the lender of last resort facility, which is governed by uh, longstanding rules. And those things build trust in uh, those institutions, but we don't have similar things for a non-bank finance. And I'm not saying that we should necessarily, but if we do, we need to make sure that the, we have the appropriate governance and oversight so that the incentives are there for the people who engage in those kinds of activities to do the right thing and not the wrong thing. So if we're going to expand, for example, the standing repo facility, we want to make sure it's accompanied by appropriate governance and oversight. And that needs to be thought out. And I don't think it, it has been. Gen- generally speaking, you're absolutely right. A lot of these firms are well known. A lot of them offer things like money market mutual funds. A lot of them offer things like open-ended bond funds. And when we can identify the risks in those things, we can see where the you know vulnerabilities in those activities might lie. So open-ended bond funds, for example, don't often run into problems, but in periods of stress, they could because they mismatch often maturities and they mismatch, uh, they engage in liquidity transformation Uh, If they offer daily redemption, even though they have a floating price, it may still be advantageous for people who suspect that, you know, they're going to be sharp movements in interest rates and declines in bond prices to get out before other people do. So I think those things are uh, important. And we haven't figured out exactly, or we, we understand how, but we haven't implemented the regulations that are probably needed to make those activities and those kinds of institutions more resilient. Is the Fed in a particularly tough spot in the sense that it it will have to be the lender of last resort if there's a crisis, but it doesn't actually regulate all the firms that are playing in this space? Sure, the Fed is in a tough spot because they can't stand idly by when there's a problem. And that certainly was there in spades during the pandemic shock. The Fed went beyond its uh, even its a great financial crisis, creation of facilities to make sure that markets were functioning. So, you know, from my standpoint, that's not the kind of financial system that we want to have because it creates the incentive that the Fed will always be there to, you know, to bail people out. And I think it would be much better if we put guardrails in place to create incentives uh, that get us a little bit, at least a little bit away from that. And some of them, I think, involve governance over these activities. Some of them involve regulations that are tailored to the nature of the risks in those activities, which we haven't yet put in place. Now, does the Fed's quantitative tightening program, its effort to shrink the balance sheet, does that have any particular risks for the financial system? There's a sense among market participants that sort of that shoe has yet to completely drop, even though the Fed has telegraphed its intentions fairly clearly. Not only have they telegraphed their intentions, but they've also made and announced uh, the schedule, you know, for which they're going to unwind the balance sheet, you know, pretty clear. Uh, they have principles, they have the pace, they have all those things. So it's not like that's a there's a big mystery around that. But the fact is that when the Fed did quantitative easing, and let me distinguish between the two phases of that and the pandemic shock, the Fed uh, first engaged in purchases of securities 
to assure market functioning. What they then did was they adduced a second reason for doing it, namely to support the economy by keeping a lid on long-term interest rates. Buying securities took duration, convexity, and liquidity out of the marketplace and credit risk out of the marketplace. So now that they're doing QT, if you will, they are putting some of those things back into the marketplace and they're putting term premiums and term risk back into the marketplace. You wouldn't know that from looking at the treasury yield curve right now, but we don't have counterfactuals to say exactly what that, you know, what that would look like in the context of people anticipating a recession or or the end of inflation. What I would say is that kind of analysis leads us to thinking that, you know, if you have no choice but to buy securities to assure market functioning, you got to make sure that there's a sunset announced uh, for when you're going to stop that. And in the Bank of England's response to the guilt disruption, they did exactly that. They said, we're going to stop on Friday and you folks are on your own. And in our judgment, this market is functioning well enough so that you can then do without our support. And I think that's one of the things that the Fed did not do and other central banks, frankly, did not do when they did the quantitative easing in two phases. And then the problem with the long period of being involved in, you know, continuing to buy securities in the marketplace, buying mortgage-backed securities, for example, even when home prices were rising at a double-digit pace, that seems like you had one foot on the accelerator and and kept, you know, supporting a housing market that obviously did not need support. So the longer you stay there, the more you create the expectation that you're going you're gonna to be there and the harder it becomes to extract yourself. So we don't know what uh, risks are out there, but as the Fed has said in its own financial stability report, and as other policymakers have said, there are likely hidden pockets of leverage. Uh, there are likely vulnerabilities, the extent to which we are not aware, um, in various parts of the financial system that we haven't seen yet. And you know, those things are maybe not easy to analyze because we either lack information, we lack insight, we haven't... We haven't uh, shone a flashlight into those dark corners of the financial system sufficiently for us to identify those risks. That's exactly, I wanted to dig deeper into that exact point because of course crises, as you suggest, happen in the places where you least expect. Nobody had uh, the guilt market and, and British pension funds on their on their 2022 bingo card. So, But I wonder if, if, if you had to name two or three major risks that you think might arise in the year ahead, where would you where would you point the finger, or where would you shine that light? You know, the response from the pandemic, uh, or to the pandemic rather, I think gives us a little bit of insight. The problem with that response is it was so extensive that you can't really make any statements about the resilience of parts of the financial system that you know might have vulnerabilities. Central counterparties are a case in point. We think, and the certainly the CCPs think that they, um, you know, survived the pandemic shock reasonably well. They would say, perhaps with flying colors, I would say, well, we don't know because of all the support that was given to the financial system. But what we did see, for example, with various shocks and the pandemic shock included was we saw redemptions of prime money funds faster actually than in the great financial crisis. Didn't last long because the Fed stepped in very quickly uh, and addressed the problem. I mean, the shocks occurred in like the 10th of March. And by the 20th of March, the Fed was actively uh, on the job, unveiling all of its artillery to address the problem. So it was short-lived, but it was abrupt. Uh, that's certainly one place to look. Anywhere there's you know, a mismatch in maturities, anywhere there's leverage, anywhere that there is complexity, anywhere where there's a lack of transparency, those are all the ingredients that we need to look to, to think about where there might be vulnerabilities that we can't 
that we can't see. You know, some people say, well, what about crypto? And my response to that is, I'm not surprised that crypto hasn't had a big impact on the financial system because it's not big enough, nor is it interconnected enough uh, to have an impact on the financial system. Certainly people lost money in crypto, but it hasn't spilled over to, you know, other parts of the system. When we think about financial stability, it's all about those vulnerabilities and the shocks that expose them and the spillovers that can affect the system as a whole and prevent it from performing its basic functions. So, you know, you asked me where the where the top three things might be. It could be in CCPs or in some of the clearing members of the CCPs on whom the risk is shifted if there's a big enough shock. It could be in some open-ended funds where we're not quite sure, you know, what the risks are because they're not transparent. It could be, you know, in other parts of the financial system. I think given the history of intervention by central banks, not just the Fed, um, in financial markets, if a problem emerges, there's a very good chance that uh, what you're going to see is pretty swift reaction uh, by the authorities. And, and you know, that's good. But the problem is it, it doesn't allow us to figure out where the next problem is going to be. Just because there's no breaking of the buck doesn't mean the buck would not have broken without. without you got it. That that's right. A lot of sense. I guess the primary reserve fund experience was really etched into the memory of regulators in a way that they will not allow it, allow it to repeat. And the irony is that, you know, in 2011, 12, 13, uh, a decade ago, we started talking about a variety of things that we needed to do to fix those problems and initially couldn't get the votes to do it uh, on the part of the SEC, who was the primary regulator for these funds. As a consequence, the Financial Stability Oversight Council wrote a report that said, you know, here are the problems uh, with this. And that was part of so-called Section 120, uh, where activities were identified that could disrupt the functioning of the financial system. And this was certainly one of them. Wasn't unique to any particular institution, but it was pervasive across a number of institutions and was an institutional feature. Um, and so they put in place some reforms. Those reforms had some beneficial impact. But the irony is that here we come to the pandemic shock and we see that those reforms were not up to the task and they weren't sufficient to prevent the runs on money funds that uh, were occurring. And so now we're talking again, the President's Working Group and other parts of the you know regulatory apparatus are talking about, a variety, not just in the United States, also in Europe and elsewhere, about round two of money market fund reform. And the irony is we've talked about a lot of the things that they're now you know rethinking again, but couldn't get done at that time. Likewise, you know, when we think about the pro-cyclicality from collateralized finance and CCPs, how do we mute the pro-cyclicality? Well, one proposal that was discussed almost a decade ago extensively, uh, and I was involved in that, was having minimum floors for haircuts for uh, repo and for other kinds of secured finance. Lots of talk, no action, hard to do, and not many people seem to be talking about it. But if you want to address pro-cyclicality, you know, think about the causes of that pro-cyclicality and address the cause, not just the symptoms, but also the causes. And uh, if it's intrinsic to this kind of finance, then address those those embedded features. So if I could ask you one last big picture question about the interaction of monetary policy and financial stability, are you concerned that the Fed might be induced to stop its monetary tightening for the wrong reasons? In other words, because it's worried about financial breakages rather than because inflation is actually convincingly returning to target? Is that, a, is that an impediment to monetary policy? It's not a serious concern right now. But I think it could be, you know, as as the Fed continues to 
high grades, just as we haven't seen the cumulative impact of what, what's been done so far uh, on inflation and the economy. Both appear to be respectively higher than and more resilient than expected. But what that suggests is that the Fed may have to do more and certainly may have to do more than what's priced into markets. If that comes as a surprise, you know, p- people's positioning and vulnerabilities in the financial system could be exposed in a way that we're not too happy about. It's not like the Fed is unaware of those things. In their November financial stability report, they did talk about some of the issues that we've been discussing here. And so in thinking about it, I think that there has been some discussion about financial stability issues. Not a lot. I don't think the Fed wants people to perceive that they're going to throw in the towel on fighting inflation because they're worried about something minor breaking in the financial system. That would certainly undermine their credibility with respect to inflation. But I do think that they are thinking about those things, and they should. And they should be thinking about, you know, we talked about the impact of quantitative tightening. You know, when this was done in the past, we saw that there were certain issues arising in connection with them. Maybe not causally, but certainly in connection with them. In 2019, we had, you know, a period during which we found out that the demand for reserves was bank reserves was stronger than people expected. And there we saw disruptions in the repo market and other markets. So you can't rule out that some of these things would have consequences. And that is the challenge for the Fed. If we haven't done in the past what we needed to do to make those parts of financial system that are more vulnerable, more resilient, then uh, that can be an impediment to monetary policy pursuing its other goals. And that, I think, underscores the basic point that you're getting at, Pedro, which is that in order to have an effective monetary policy, you have to assure that the financial system, which is the conduct for the, or the, the conduit for that monetary policy, function under a variety of circumstances and not, you know, not break when you're trying to bring inflation down. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your insights. I really appreciate it. That was Dr. Richard Berner, Clinical Professor of Finance at NYU. Thanks Thanks for having me.